Chapter 12 It Happened on Kant Street My grandfather would say that the mystery of Klaus was greater than that of the murdered men. While in some respects he knew Klaus well, in others he knew him not at all, and in many ways he would always remain a mystery. It was only during my trip to Prague that I would uncover some of this mystery. One of the first things I did was visit Klaus's hometown in the north of the country, in what was once part of the Sudetenland. Here I noticed right away how little there was to indicate that the city and its surrounding towns had once had German names and German-majority populations. After World War II, under the Benish decrees, Czechoslovakia expelled most of its German citizens from the area, who had been living there almost as long as Jews had been living in Prague, but who were also among the most ardent supporters of the Nazis anywhere. This expulsion was part of the nearly 15 million ethnic Germans who were forced to flee from their homes across Europe at that time. I would discover little about Klaus in the city where he was born, raised, and buried. Apart from his gravestone, I found his birth and death certificates and various unimportant documents from his early life. But I could find nothing about the events from the time of his falling out with Hermann in college to his reuniting with him in Theresienstadt. For this, I had to go back to Prague and visit the archives of the Military History Institute on Upamatniku Street. Though just getting access to these archives was difficult, as it was open only to accredited historians, which I decidedly was not. Fortunately, my grandfather had taught me how to become best friends with the locals. Before returning to Prague, I took a quick trip to Carlo Vivari. This is a spa city a few hours west of the capital that is famous for its hot springs and an herbal liqueur produced there called Bekarovka that in my grandfather's day was known as Karl's Batter Becker Bitter. From the Jan Becker Company store, I bought a few bottles of a special edition of this liqueur that was infused with honey and only sold there which my grandfather had once told me could put a smile on the face of the devil. These bottles literally opened doors for me, including the institutes. There, I spent many weeks digging through stacks of mundane war documents with a German dictionary and my rudimentary knowledge of the language, which I never really learned despite my grandparents being native speakers and my own special connection to it. Finally, I discovered something interesting. At the conclusion of this case, the Nazis conducted a full and thorough inquest of it. While this provided little insight into what Klaus was thinking and feeling at the time the events took place, and in this respect he remains almost as much of a mystery to me as he was to my grandfather, I was able to cobble together many facts that are relevant not only to this story, but also speak to Klaus's motivations. These began with the events that coincided with Hermann's return to his old apartment. Klaus left Cherning Palace with the sun setting in front of him. The first thing he must have seen was his Mercedes and the driver inside it. 
but he also saw something else. Uchernehova Law across the square. Klaus's driver told the inquest that Klaus was just standing there glaring at the pub. I suppose much like how he was glaring earlier while Herman sipped his beer. But eventually he took a handful of steps toward it before he abruptly stopped and turned around and he rushed into the back seat of his car where he ordered the driver to leave at once. Quickly the Mercedes sped off. Again it made its way through Harachani and over the river. It further made its way through the maze and returned Klaus to Old Town Square. This was just a short distance from his final destination of the evening, Shelesna Street, which is one of the many ancient and crooked cobblestone roads in that part of the city and leads from the southern end of the square. Without much enthusiasm, Klaus exited the car and crossed the square, just as a tram did the same. But even though it was speeding in his path, he didn't stop or speed up. Indifferently, he crossed the tracks just seconds before the tram passed. Then, once he reached Chilesna, he stopped and turned to a sun that had almost completely fallen. The driver told the inquest that Klaus's face had lost all color and that he looked as if he were anywhere but there. Where exactly he was, I can't say, but I do know that the inquest brought up Klaus's troubled past. This included one particular incident on Berlin's Kant Street in 1928 that stuck out to me because, according to my grandfather, during the course of this case, Klaus would always have an adverse reaction whenever anyone brought up Kant's name. This incident began when Klaus drunkenly stumbled out of the El Dorado Club late one September evening. It was so late that the streets were empty, but they didn't stay this way for long. Two men came running out of their park Dixie 315, which was a forerunner of today's BMWs, and they accosted Klaus and started beating him against one of the walls of the club. According to a witness inside the club, who watched this in horror through a window, even in Klaus's state he could have easily handled the men. Instead, the witness said that he egged them on. He was certain that Klaus had wanted the men to hurt him. He even laughed at their blows, in spite of their increasing savagery. He laughed until he could do so no more. Back on Gildesna Street, Klaus turned his head a bit. He was now facing Uhinku, which was the pub Herman had mentioned to him earlier and one of their favorite drinking spots when they were in college. Like he did in front of Uchernehovala, Klaus took a few steps toward the pub, but he again forced himself to stop and turn around, and he started down Gildesna and made his way through the arch entranceway of number 18, which is a 16th century building that today looks even older than that. Inside this is both a courtyard and a set of old stone steps, and up the ladder he climbed to the second floor, where he rang the doorbell. At once the door swung open, and a tall servant around thirty with bleached blonde hair and blue eyes greeted him in a pristine black uniform. Hello, Kamcha, Klaus said to her with a forced smile. Kamcha replied in kind, and she led him into the foyer, 
where she took his overcoat and told him, The lady is getting dressed. Klaus nodded, and he shuffled down the corridor toward a door, watched by Kamsha as she hung up his coat. Is that you, Klaus, came another female voice? This from behind the door as Klaus stopped in front of it. It's me, answered Klaus, as he stared at his aging face in a mirror at the end of the hallway. Kamchip told the inquest that he was doing so while touching the lines and wrinkles around his eyes, as if their existence had surprised him. I'll be ready in a few minutes, the woman in the bedroom went on. All right, Klaus mumbled while looking as if he wanted to cry. Will you be staying overnight, she added. If you don't mind, he replied. You know I don't, she replied back. You're always welcome here. Where would you like to go tonight? Klaus looked as if he were trying to come up with an answer to this. He tried and tried, but finally he uttered, You think... You think we could just stay in tonight? This led her to ask, Are you not feeling well? I'm feeling tired, he answered. But if you really want to go out... I think staying home would be a wonderful idea, she declared. I'll have Kamcha cook us up something. Is there anything particular you would like? Anything would be fine, he maintained. Are you sure you're just tired, she inquired. You sound a little off. I am a little off, Klaus admitted after giving it some thought. Or maybe a lot. What's wrong, dear? questioned the woman. Does it have something to do with that nasty investigation you've been involved with? I guess so, he remarked. I know you can't discuss the specifics of it with me, she continued. But can't you at least tell me what's bothering you? Nothing's bothering me, he insisted. Did you have some kind of setback today, she asked. Actually, he muttered while lifting his head a bit, it was quite the opposite. I have every confidence now that the case will be resolved soon. Shouldn't that make you happy, the woman asked next. It should, he argued, as if he were trying to convince himself. Suddenly, the door to the bedroom swung open, and Klaus turned toward it and the beautiful woman standing in front of it, who was wearing a lavish white evening gown. Years later, this woman would insist to me that Klaus in some ways adored her. She said that he saw her much like a wall he could always lean on. He knew, too, that there was a safety with her that he couldn't find anywhere else. But she believed as well that he found her draining, and this was likely the last thing he wanted. As with Kamcha, Klaus forced a mild smile upon the woman. Based on everything I know about him, I bet he also forced upon himself the even milder belief that her appearance had brought him some joy.